0: Well, as we begin today, as I said, we are, we, are, we are going to try to get through three chapters of the book of Romans, chapter 9, 10, and 11. And the incredible thing about these three chapters is they help us to begin to unpack and pull back a veil on this concept of a, it's a mystery of God when it comes to salvation. And, and so as you look at this mystery, let's look first of all at this verse from 1 1 Timothy. Paul writes this, he says, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And so Paul is urging us to pray for people. And and one of the things that you would pray about for a person is that they would be saved, right? I mean, this is a concern for all of us that people receive this gift of the gospel. And notice what he says next. So it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. These prayers are pleasing. And he, God, desires all people to, to be saved. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You see, here's the mystery. Think about it. God desires all people to be saved, but let me ask you, are all people saved? The answer is no. You know people who have rejected Christ. How does this happen? So we want to examine that mystery today. Before we do, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your truth, the knowledge of the truth that saves us, that changes us, and makes us part of the mystery of communicating that gift to the world. We pray that you would give us more of that knowledge of the truth that saves today, that we would understand our role in the mystery. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter 9 begins with Paul in a dilemma. And his dilemma, you can feel it. You can feel the emotion. You can feel how difficult it is for him to accept these realities. As he begins these first three verses, he says this. He says, look, I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is crushed by something. Paul is disturbed deeply. He has this sorrow and anguish, and he's wearing those emotions on his sleeve so we can see them. This is something that's a big deal for Paul. So and that's kind of interesting that he would have such sorrow and anguish because he's just spent eight chapters telling us of the good news. You know, he said to us that the, the truth is that we can know God, that we can know about his solution to the problem of sin, Jesus Christ. That we have a new identity in Christ. We're sons and daughters of Jesus, or of God, and brother and sister of Jesus. And that God has a plan for our lives to sanctify us, to make us part of that mission. And he provides the power and strength that we can be a part of that plan through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is all good news, that we could be disciples, people who, are, who want to look, live, and more, love more like Jesus. Jesus. What it means to be a disciple, and yet he has sorrow and anguish in his heart. Why? And the reality is that while Paul has that message, and as he as he comprehends that message, as he lives and writes and teaches that message, he, message, he realizes that not everybody will receive the good news. And so he prays. He prays this what theologians call his crazy prayer. This is Paul's crazy prayer. He says, "Look." He said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What he's saying is, look, if I could somehow make that happen, that they would not be cut off, that I would be cut off in their place, that I would give up my salvation so that they might have this gift. That's how much it means to him because of his kinsmen, his tribe. The people that he loves and cares for, probably some of his family. Paul had been preaching for almost 30 years, and yet there were still people who were Israelites who had said no to Jesus Christ. You know, some of the most difficult conversations I have with people are around loved ones, members of people's tribe, if you would, who don't know Jesus. Sometimes it's mom or dad or a spouse. Husband, wife, children, close friends, people who don't know Jesus. And the more you understand what this gift is all about, the more you realize how important it is that people not miss out. And especially the people in your tribe who you naturally love and care for, you want them to know. But let me ask you, who does your heart break for today? Who in your tribe needs to hear the message, understand the message, receive the message of salvation? Which one of your friends needs to know the gospel? Sometimes people tell me, they say, well, I don't have any friends that don't know Jesus. I'd say, hey, it's time to get some new friends (laughs) that don't know Jesus. Here's what happens to Paul. Here's what happens to us. The more we comprehend this mission, the more it becomes real to us the more consumed we become. The more more consumed we become with the mission of helping people see this amazing gift. Now, there's a mystery, though. The mystery is that how does that happen? And Paul begins to unpack the mystery and try to help us at least see some of it. It's a difficult thing. You know, a mystery is something that's difficult or hard to explain. And so the next few minutes, this is a little difficult and hard to explain. And, and so we're going to struggle with compu- kind of pulling the veil back a little bit and try to understand why some people are saved and other people are not saved. It's a challenge. And the first question that Paul asks, he says, well, you know, he really responds to is, is it the Word of God? Is it the fault of the Word of God? Does it, does it work? Does it really help people come to the knowledge of the truth that's saved? And he responds fairly quickly, he says, well, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. The word of God is clear. In fact, the Israelites had all the advantages, Paul writes. You know, they had God there guiding them through the desert. And they had the Ten Commandments. And they had the prophets and the patriarchs. And they had all this advantage. Jesus Christ himself was a Jewish person. And so they knew about this offer of salvation. And they had the Torah, the written word. And so it's not as if that has failed. He said, but... We need to accept the realities. And this is a difficult statement. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And I, I read that six times. And I said, huh? What does that mean? And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's using this, this this term. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's using the word Israel in two different ways. And it's helpful for us to understand because we're actually included in the concept of Israel, as we will see. You see, the the two different concepts uh, that we're talking about are, first of all, the physical Israel from which all of Paul's kinsmen originate. In other words, all of us have a bloodline, right? We We all are descendants of someone. And he's speaking specifically of the nation of Israel. But he's also speaking, and he will speak, and we'll see this come up later, of spiritual Israel. And not everybody who's part of Israel is going to be a part of Israel. It's kind of, I know that sounds funny, but that's the reality. Spiritual Israel is what happens when someone is saved, when somebody has a relationship with Jesus, when they're children of the promise versus children of the flesh. In fact, he goes on to explain this. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring." And so we see it clearly in this, in this chapter, this entire chapter. There's those that are the children of the promise, and there are those who are the children of the flesh. How does that happen? And he goes through, and he, he recounts Israel's history, and he begins to give us a history of all the different people. And he says, look, the children of the promise include people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are other people in that history that seem to not only not receive, but sometimes even work against the cause of what God is trying to do through the nation of Israel. People like Ishmael and and Esau and and even Pharaoh. And it becomes when you read it, it becomes very, very difficult to sort out and say, wait a minute, why did that happen? I mean, did God really, does he actually cause those people not to have faith? And you can read that in a way where you might think that. It's very difficult. And so we have to ask, how does this happen? How does this division happen between those who are children of the promise and children of the flesh? How does it actually work? There are two verses that are important for us to understand this. First is the 15th verse of Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the first read of this, you might think, well, whoa, that's God speaking. If that's God speaking, that means that he chooses I mean, it kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? It's actually a quotation of God speaking to the Israelites uh, back in Exodus chapter 33. And if you just pull that passage out, which some people do, they say, well, see, God just chooses. There's really nothing we can do. There's nothing we can t- uh, do to affect the eternal outcome of a human being because God chooses. And then he, he says it again, and he adds something to it in verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And there we see the concept of hardening that God would even take somebody who's maybe disobedient and harden their heart and and we'll see he can do that but he doesn't do it first he does it because people are hardening their hearts and he, then he uses them for his purposes people like Pharaoh. And I know I know you're beginning your minds beginning to spin a little bit about all this because it's hard to understand isn't it? But we need to be clear, we need to be very clear that the idea that God does not choose to send people away from him. That that's something that happens in our hearts. Let me try to explain. The question that comes up is this, simply is, does God predestine people to heaven and hell? Does he, he make a decision beforehand? I mean, some denominations teach this. It's out there. You may have been in a church where it was taught. That everything is scripted before all time. That these people are going to be going away from God and these people are going to be going towards God. These people are in hell. These people are in heaven. And the answer to that is what we believe as a church. It's very, very clear, we think, from Scripture. But you have to read it a lot and study a lot to actually grasp it. Is that no, God never, ever, ever would send someone to hell and say that person was chosen for that. Because God desires all people to be saved, doesn't he? Didn't we just read that in Timothy? He desires all people to be saved. Okay, He doesn't doesn't do that. And so does he predestine people to heaven? Yes. He says, I want every one of those people to be in heaven. I know, it's like, does this really make sense yet? Well, you have to think about it for a while for it to all sink in. And even even Peter, and I love this, Peter writes this about Paul's writing. I think it's kind of funny. He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. (laughs) Yes, there are. But he offers a caution, too. He says, look, some people will take these things and twist them around and make them into doctrines and teaching that do harm to people. So I have to be really careful with this. I want to be really clear with you about what we believe. God predestines every one of us to be with him in heaven. And so we look at this church. This is what we believe. God's grace is freely given to all, but guess what? We can say no to it. We can walk away from it. And this is the message of Romans 9. As you study through it and you read through it, keep this in mind, and it will be clear. If you begin to look at the idea of that God scripts people to go to hell, it will, you'll get into some trouble. But this is really what we believe and what we understand to be true. Now, one of the challenges is, and this is something that was brought up last week, is Romans 8, 29. Um, Tony taught on this last week. He said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's that word predestined, that he predecided. Now, just for a moment, think about God. Does, he, does God exist inside of time or outside of time? See, he exists where he can see beginning and end. And so for him to say that he's predestined who is going to be conformed to the image of the son, he already sees it, he already knows it, but he didn't choose it. He just knows how we will respond. So don't let a verse like that trip you up either. But he does predestine, he does say, I want everyone to be saved, but it is possible to say no to that. Now, I know, again, your heads are spinning and this conversation isn't long enough, can't be long enough today that we can unpack this further. So if you have questions, be sure and see me afterwards or email me. My email address is on your sermon notes card. I'd love to, to continue to walk you through it so that we can understand it fully. Paul continues here, though, and he says, look, there, here's, here's the evidence. There's only a remnant of Israel will be saved. Not all of Israel will be saved. Some people in Israel are going to say no, and guess what? Some people in our Gentile world will say no as well. But the cool part is he says that Gentiles can be saved, that we're actually part of what God is doing, that we're part of the all. When God says all, he means all. For God so loved the world. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. There is no limit to where God wants to go in terms of saving people. There's nothing that's been pre-decided God may know because of that foreknowledge, but there's nothing that's been predecided by God. It's this amazing interaction between the human heart and God, and somewhere inside of that, that decision gets made. And here's what people stumble over right here. Romans chapter 9, as he finishes this chapter, he says, They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, The stone is Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone of our life and faith. But people stumble over him. Why would he be called the rock of offense, though? Why would Jesus be offensive to people? The reason why is when you look at Jesus on a cross, what you're looking at is your sin, your sin. He died for it. So in other words, to receive Jesus as the rock of our salvation is to say, indeed, I'm a sinner. That I have a deficit in my life. And we'll see him explain this again in just a moment as we get into chapter 10. And so people stumble over this all the time. They say, wait a minute, you know, what do you mean that I have to be forgiven? I don't have sin. I'm a good person. And they stumble over this and they reject Christ. Paul goes on in chapter 10, he says, look, Brothers, my heart's desires, desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. In other words, Paul is saying, I have passion in my heart, and I have a prayer. I have a prayer that they would be saved. And he's not just sitting by idly and saying, okay, well, you know, I can't do anything about this. I have no role in this mystery. He's saying, no, 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 I'm praying actively for, I'm praying for my brothers, my tribe. My sisters, my parents, whoever I know that doesn't know Jesus, I have a passion and a prayer for that because I want them to be saved. So about your tribe, who do you want to be saved? Do you have a passion and a prayer for that person? I told you uh, earlier that I, I think I mentioned or may not have mentioned this service, but I, the last couple of weeks I've been on vacation. And I got to spend time with family, the people I love, my tribe, I had gathered together. And, you know, I'm always taking an inventory, like who's leaving, who's walking away from Christ, who's coming. You know, if you're a parent and you're a Christian, you probably do the same thing. You're always trying to discern where everybody's at. But I, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I, I, have I mentioned I have a new grandson? I just, I, yeah, okay. Had to work him into this sermon because we had such a great time. But as I'm holding Sam who has the gift of faith through baptism, and say, this is my tribe. It's my grandfatherly duty. I have to have passion. I do have passion in my heart and a prayer for him that he grows up in the faith, that he receives this, that he does not reject this incredible gift. But I know that God has freely given it. The question is, will he grow up in it? And I am not going to sit by idly, and neither should you for the ones that you love. You should take an active part of that, and that's what Paul is saying. He continues and he says, I I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's speaking of the Jews, but we can apply it today. A lot of people love to talk about God. They say things like, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Do you know what they're doing? They're simply saying, look, I'm going to reject what God's knowledge is, the knowledge, the true knowledge of God, and I'm going to define God on my own terms. Here's what Paul says about that person. He says they're ignorant. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Let's talk about that for a minute. The righteousness of God measures us, doesn't it? We have to stand beside it. We have to, God's holiness is the, the yardstick that we stand next to if we're not Christians, and our lives never measure up. We can't establish our own righteousness. Okay? It's impossible. We are lost people without Christ. Many people do not submit to God's righteousness, the requirements for it. They don't understand the deficit in their own life. But then he reassures us, he says, for those of us who are Christians, for those those of us who are in Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's not where we get our righteousness. We don't have to be perfect, right? Because we are justified, we are declared righteous, not through our own works, but by what Jesus has done for us. And so this person does not exist in our world today. There are no good people. That's what we learned in Romans chapter 3. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need Christ's righteousness, but we stumble over that stumbling stone that says we're a sinner. Paul says, look, it's not that hard. He says the word is near to you, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Was, he's quoting again Moses there. Moses begins a section back with the Israelites. He says, look, this is not so hard for you to understand, is what Moses says to the Israelites, that God loves you and wants you to have faith in him. It's not so hard for you to get it. And so when Paul quotes Moses, they would have understood that section of scripture. He says, that is, he says, the word of faith that we proclaim. He says, not only is the word of God near, I'm proclaiming it, but Jesus came in the flesh to deliver it. You should be able to see it. It's not that hard. It's really not rocket science. It's not that complex. This is all you need to do is is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And what happens as a result? You will be saved. It's not that hard. But people stumble over this requirement of righteousness that can come only through Christ. So he continues, as he continues, he says, Look, it's for with the heart that one believes and is justified. What does that word, justified, mean? Just as if I have never sinned. Okay, you got to remember that. We're declared righteous as followers of Christ. And it's with the mouth that one confesses and we are saved. That's why we do confirmation, by the way, because everybody wants to hear the confession of a young person. And pastors want to hear the confession of their people, that they know where they are. And in our tribes, our family, we want to hear the confession of belief from the people that we love the most. We want to know where they are because they could be walking away and rejecting the offer. As Paul continues, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not some, not limited, It's not limited in any way. It's not restricted in any way. It's anyone who calls out. That's why we want to hear that confession. Then he asked a series of four four questions. He says, look, how is this going to happen? And he says, how then will they call on him whom, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or you could say proclaiming, explaining the knowledge of the truth that's saved? And how are they... To preach, unless they are sent. All of a sudden, now we get this sense of we are even more of a part of the mystery than we could ever understand because the answer to those questions is that each one of us is sent, each one of us has a proclamation message to deliver, especially to our tribe. Paul has a really interesting way of summing this little section up. As he begins to talk about feet. And uh, last night I wore some shoes I could slip off, and I actually slipped one off, and I showed people my feet, and the look on the, the, the horror on the people's faces, I, I decided to spare that, spare you from that today. Okay. But what's he say about it? He says, look, he says, feet are Beautiful. Feet are beautiful. And I look at those feet and I'm going, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'd qualify all those. Now, you know, maybe you ladies who go for the pedicures, you know, and all that. And then I had, I had a guy tell me after service, hey, I get a pedicure every once in a while. It's like, okay. There's a guy in his manhood. It's good. <laughs> then I had another, well, that's enough of that. But the idea that as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You want beautiful feet, no matter what they look like? Preach, proclaim the word of God to people. Take that message to your tribe so that they know it and hear it. And, and that's your only job. You're not responsible for the results. Paul continues, he says, look, but they have not all obeyed the gospel because he's done this. Paul has beautiful feet. He's gone to his Israelite, his tribe, and he's proclaimed the gospel. And they've said, many of them said no. He quotes Isaiah, he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And then he, as he wraps up, he says, and so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, you've heard probably St. Francis of Assisi quoted as saying, preach the gospel, always use words when necessary. You ever hear that? Guess what? Words are always necessary. There is no other way to come to knowledge without communicating truth, the truth that saves to people. And somehow or another, we are part of that mystery to communicate and just to keep communicating and to never give up. We're part of that mystery. You see, God stands all day long and holds out his hands to disobedient and contrary people, the last verse of Romans 10. Our job is to pray and proclaim, to never give up, no matter how difficult, how challenging our tribe is. The people that we know that need to hear the gospel, we just keep on keeping on doing it. There's a resource I'd recommend if you want to read more about how to best do that. It's called Bringing the Gospel Home. I don't know if you can read the subtitle, but it says, Witnessing to family members, close friends, and to others who know you well. You see, and that last part can kind of be a little bit of a challenge at times when people know us well, because they may not see Christ in us enough, And but yet he says, we got to do it. This book is a great encouragement. This quote says, once we realize evangelism occurs in the realm of the miraculous, we start praying more faithfully, trusting more wholeheartedly, and proclaiming more gently. That's a key, gentleness with family members. I've had so many encounters with my family members who are not Believers that have not been gentle on my part. It doesn't work. And he says, then we relinquish, when when we relinquish trust in our ability to persuade and latch onto God's power to say, we find hope beyond explanation. This is my encouragement for you today. If you've got family members who are far away from God, get this resource. It'll give you some tips and ideas about those conversations. As we wrap up and look in chapter 11, we won't go through it in detail, but I do want you to read it and look for these themes. First of all, you'll see the remnant. You'll see the remnant that uh, is, is, is evidence that not everybody is going to be saved. You're going to also see how God hardens in response to hard hearts. In other words, this idea that God will take disobedience. If you're being disobedient, He has there's examples like Pharaoh, and he will harden a heart and use it for his purpose. Use it for his good. Here's an example. The Jews were hardened. They, they, they were disobedient. Then they were hardened. And so finally, Paul says, hey, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. We wouldn't have the gospel. Just amazing how God can do that a part of, as a part of this mystery. We're also going to, you're going to read about the regrafting in of Israel, the nation, which is an indication that even after rejection, people can come back, be regrafted grafted into this, this olive, uh, tree and this branch can be put back. And when as a part of that, what happens is that we know that all of Israel, all of spiritual Israel, all of the people that are coming back, will be together and be regrafted in and be saved. And finally, you'll read about God's mercy, how again, how he wants everyone to have it, that he extends it freely to everyone, that he stands even in our stubbornness and our obstinence. He stands extending his hands and saying, come. It's never too late. You're never too far gone. He's inviting us back. Paul ends this section and he admits the mystery. He admits that we can't quite fully comprehend all this. He simply says this. He says, oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? As he wraps up, he says, oh, what has, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We can't give God anything. He's authored all of this. For, for from him and through him and to him are all things. For his purposes, to him be the glory forever. Amen. This is an amazing section of scripture that helps us to understand God's incredible passion that people are saved and our role in that mystery. As you, as you consider your tribe today, and consider maybe those who are not walking in the direction of Jesus, know that you can have a passion and prayer to reach out to them. You can proclaim to them. And that we always have this hope that they will come, that they will be regrafted back into this amazing family, believers, God's people. I pray that that happens for all of us in our families, in our tribes. Let's pray together.